Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Today, I talk with Nevada Assemblymember Sandra Howdy-G. We talked about how Nevada will be impacted by climate change and the influx of Californians. Then we got emotional about gun violence and how her experience pushed her to do some real reforms in her state. Finally, she gave us recommendations for 24 hours in Vegas that will make the most of every minute. Nevada continues to be one of the most fascinating and inspiring spots in American politics. Enjoy. Welcome to an honorable profession. It is wonderful to be talking to you today. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here with you today and with everyone who's listening in. I have a lot of questions. I want to talk about your personal path. I want to talk about gun control legislation and other efforts you're making in the legislature. But I thought I'd start with an article today that I was reading from a new UN report on climate change and how big the impact is going to be and how difficult adaptation is going to be, especially if we don't act and act meaningfully soon. As I sit here, it strikes me that Nevada must be a particularly vulnerable place to climate change. And how do you think about how your state will adapt and what can it do uh, to reduce some of the impacts on communities? That's a great question, Ryan. And I think it's it's something not just Nevadans are facing, but Americans are facing throughout the country, right? The impacts of climate change. One of the things I'm proud of is that this week during the state of the state, the governor pledged, you know, $8 million towards wildfire prevention efforts. And that goes hand in hand with climate change because as, as our climate changes and our state get hotter, we're seeing more and more annual fires in northern Nevada, which are impacting some of our most vital treasures like Lake Tahoe. One of the things Nevada has always been the leader on is also you know, renewable energy. And so I want us continuing to focus our efforts on making sure we're bringing, bringing clean, good paying jobs to Nevadans. With over 300 days of sunshine that our state offers, there's no reason why we shouldn't be leading the nation. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, you got more sunshine, uh, than, than, <laughs> than almost anywhere else in the, in the country for sure. And, and taking advantage of that. Can you talk a little bit about your efforts around Lake Tahoe and the infrastructure and water issues, uh, in Nevada that you've been working so closely on? Yeah, well, I actually sat on the, uh, TRPA, which is the Tahoe Regional Planning Agency for two interims. It's been a, been about two or three to four years since I, yeah, probably about 
four years since I've sat on it now, but that's one of our most prized, you know, possessions is uh, Lake Tahoe. We've been focusing a lot on making sure, again, we are doing our part to prevent wildfires because of the runoff that affects the the lake, right? Um, it affects the clarity, making sure we're doing a lot of work around our aquatic invasive species and keeping them, well, down. One of the areas I think we probably need to focus more on, you touched a little bit on what we're doing with water conservation. You know, we're, we're a desert and this not just impacts Northern Nevada and Lake Tahoe, but it's something that impacts our entire state. They, for the first time ever in Nevada history, they actually declared Lake Mead a national emergency because our water levels were so low. And so I think one of the things I've been doing here just at a local level, right, is really working with Southern Nevada Water Authority and figuring out what we can do to promote water conservation amongst residents and then what other types of programs we can do. One of the things that they just launched was, and, and I think this is great, a lot of the development community, not so friendly, right, and not so excited about it, but um, uh, is trying to do away with septic tanks. So septic tanks, unfortunately, we don't get to capture the water that comes back. So we have great water programs, right? We don't get to recycle that water. So they are no longer going to allow um, future developments to have septic tanks, which is, I think is a big plus. We also have a water conservation easement program um, down here, which encourages Nevadans to do away with any water consuming type of landscape. So pools, grass, and really convert into desertscape, which has been really successful. And they had to throw some money behind it to get people to buy in, which is good though, right? Because money is incentivizing. So we've seen a lot of homeowners down in Southern Nevada actually convert their turf into desert friendly, well, desertscape, desert friendly plants, and then also do away with pools. So uh, minor baby steps, right? But I think um, if we add everything up together, then hopefully we'll at least make some impact on water. Yeah. What is the water future of Nevada uh, as you, as you try to plan for, for both changes in climate and also I assume continued population growth? Yeah, I think, you know, I was having this conversation yesterday and I think in the 90s, water was the biggest problem our state faced. Um, you know, I wasn't here yet. I didn't move to Nevada until 2009. But when I got here and when I ran for office for the first time, the num a number one issue I think people were grappling with was, you know, Nevada keeps growing as a state. And what are we going to do about our water? And even now, you know, one of the biggest things we hear is, you know, water is the number one issue. So I don't think that's ever going to change. I think, unfortunately, we're in a position where we do live in a desert and our state is is growing, right? We have, I mean, just from California alone, I think the approximate numbers are about 10,000 Californians moving in a month to Nevada. And so I don't think water issues are ever going to weigh. I think it's going to be something that we're always going to have to plan for and always going to have to tackle. I'm fascinated by that number sitting here in California, 10,000 Californians a month. Yeah, that was the, the last number I had heard. I had I tried to get some like accurate numbers, you know, from the DMV, but unfortunately not everyone surrenders their driver's license when they move to the state, right? They keep their yeah. old um old licenses, but I got I was able to get some figures from the Department of Taxation and they estimated about 10,000 Californians a month were moving to uh Nevada. Wow. I so know. I, that's, and I'm that's sure there's a, more moving to Arizona as well and Yeah. That is, that's, that's a, an astonishing number. I was going to ask, cause the pandemic, obviously you've been in office since 2016. So you've seen a lot of ups and downs in your state, but, but the pandemic must've been a heart wrenching 
catastrophic event given the tourism economy of Nevada and you know just the impacts on communities. I was gonna I was curious to see how how you think your state fared through the the pandemic and what has been some of the maybe unanticipated outcomes that came from the event. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I growing up in Southern California, a neighboring state to Nevada, we we came to Las Vegas to vacation um, very frequently. So I got to to come to Las Vegas multiple times as I was growing up. And then when I decided um, after I graduated junior college that I wanted to transfer to the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, you know, I moved out here in 2009. And I've never in my life of living in Las Vegas or visiting Las Vegas ever dreamed that I would experience the Las Vegas Strip being shut down for 30 days, right? But that was definitely something that I don't think you could ever prepare for being such a tourism and hospitality driven industry. But, you know, despite what you hear, you know, I think the rhetoric of the right and all the nastiness that gets amplified on social media, I think Nevadans really came together to kind of support each other during those days and then do what they needed to do, making sure they were getting vaccinated and getting max steps, mass steps so that as soon as the strip reopened, we weren't in peril of it getting shut down again. And We've had mask mandates. We've had vaccine mandates. A lot of those have lifted. You know, a lot of the casinos were requiring uh, their employees to either get tested every day that they came in or provide proof of vaccination. And I think as a community, you saw that everyone really came together to do what was necessary to keep our resort corridor open because it is so vital to our to our state. It's the economic engine that drives our state. And I'm I'm so happy to see our economy is, you know, booming again. Tourism is up, unemployment is down, and our gaming revenues are really high. And it's great to see Nevadans not just getting back to their life, but also people visiting Nevada from various states in the United States and internationally as well. Okay. Yeah. I was curious as we're, we're talking on March 1st, I was curious what you're seeing in terms of tourism coming back with at least the casinos are expecting going forward for the for the remainder of this year i don't have a solid number to give you as far as like what they're expecting but i i can tell you this tourism is up from what we've expected i've seen i mean just the the people flooding into our state to fill uh allegiant stadiums for the concert you know i'm super excited that we're actually getting to use Allegiant Stadium this year, right? And in 2021, it was expected to open and have its first concert there in 2020, and that got postponed. And so this is its a huge driver of tourism to our state. Having the professional um, football team now help really bring in tourism to our state. Having the professional hockey team now is really helping bring in tourism to our state. And and just the people getting out, coming to visit the the gaming establishments, and you know CES was back and had you know a great turnout this year. We had the national finals rodeo for the last time this year, and and the strip. It's just it was packed. New Year's are you know it, it was a couple hundred thousand. I think people they said were here for New Year's Eve weekend, and so it's great. It's great to see our community thriving again. That's that's great news for you. Absolutely, absolutely. I think it's. Um... It'll be good to to get back to the normalcy of a um, of a crazy Las Vegas weekend with all those attractions you're talking about. You mentioned that you grew up in California and then made your way to Nevada. Could you just share your a little bit of your life path and what drew you into public service of all the of all the things you could do? Why why public service and elected office? 
Absolutely. Um, well, I was born and raised in Southern California. I grew up in a little town about 20 minutes east of LA called Hacienda Heights. I'm the daughter of two immigrants from Mexico. So my parents um, met here and I was born in a little city called Monterey Park. And then we moved to Hacienda Heights where I spent the most of my life growing up. But growing up, I I really, you know, I, I had this opportunity in front of me where I'm very fortunate that I didn't face any barriers being the daughter of two immigrants from Mexico. I going through the public education system. My parents always instilled in me that if, you know, I wanted to own my own business, I just had to work hard. You know, if I wanted to get into the college I wanted to get into, I just had to work hard. If I, you know, wanted to run for office, I just had to work hard. And I'm noticing a trend in the, in the advice from your parents. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. They, um, well, my, you know, I, I'm the daughter of, a uh, my, my dad actually got to realize the American dream, right? He, he went to high school here, went to college, but then was an entrepreneur at heart and was very lucky to start up his, you know, his companies and did very well. And he really, really is the realization of the American dream. And again, I saw all of that growing up and realized that this is the land of opportunity. And I have all this opportunity in front of me. And as I grew up and I realized that, hey, I want to make sure that every single child, whether you're growing up in Nevada or California or any other state, whether you're the daughter of immigrants or the child of immigrants, you know, first generation, second generation, third generation, that you still believe and you still have that same opportunity that I had growing up. I mean, I went through public education that prepared me to go to higher education. You know, I went to junior college and graduated from the University of Nevada with my bachelor's in history. And I sit here, you know, the daughter of two immigrants from Mexico who represents the four 41st assembly district in the state of Nevada. And, you know, that's opportunity. And that's the kind of opportunity I wanted for every child in our country. And that's really what drove me to run. But I've always known that my heart was in public service. Since I was in high school, I knew that one day I would serve, you know, the state. I, at that point, I thought it was going to be the state of California. But, you know, my plans <laughs> brought me to Nevada and I fell in love with the state and I never wanted to leave. And I knew that this was going to be home and that this was the state that I wanted to serve. And if one of the first places you served is in the office of uh, the recently uh, deceased Majority Leader Harry Reid. Can you talk a little bit about what that experience meant to you and what his his legacy in Nevada is and continues to be? Yes. And, you know, that that was actually, I think, the experience that really cemented that this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I started in his office in it was the first Monday of January, 2010, as an intern, and they brought me on. I had a lot of experience. My my paying background, my professional background, has always been in housing um, and real estate. So this was during the time where Nevada was just suffering, and other states as well, right through one of the first in our generation's recessions that we've ever experienced. And Nevadans, through no fault of their own, were losing their homes because they were losing their jobs. And so they brought me in to really work with the housing division of his office and make sure we were giving constituents the resources and the assistance that they needed, bringing resources to our state in terms of housing fair so that people could get in contact with their banks in person and figure out what was going on, right? Why their modification wasn't being approved or why their forbearance wasn't being approved or just really get them the assistance that they needed at that time. And working one-on-one with constituents and really helping them made me realize that that's what I wanted to do with, you know, my future, like help 
constituents. And that was actually the experience that made me decide that when I started my political career, that I wanted to start in the Nevada State Assembly because we are the smallest districts in the state, right? We represent the smallest population of constituency. So I knew that I would have more I would be more accessible to the people I represent and really give them an opportunity to reach out to me when they needed to and listen to what their concerns are. I owe my entire future here in Nevada and my political career to Senator Reid. I think one of the things I, I take away from his office and one of the, I think every Reidite will tell you is that, you know, work until the work is done. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that is good advice for everybody in any industry, but especially, especially public service. Can you describe that first run for office as we had uh, Danielle Monroe Moreno uh, on the podcast uh, maybe a couple years ago, and she was talking about the transformation of the Nevada legislature to the first uh, women majority legislature and the difference in the sort of uh, the energy that that created. Can you talk about your decision to run for office and then what it was like to first step in that legislative chamber? Absolutely. And, you know, we're we're very fortunate that here in Nevada, we have a state government that's reflective of the people it represents. We're a majority female, a majority minority state legislature, which is wonderful. And I'm so proud of our state for doing that. But a lot of that actually had to do with uh, I, I want to give full a lot of credit to our speaker, Jason Frierson, who is also a new dealer, because he really made sure that he was bringing diversity into the legislature. He, you know, he was there to recruit Danielle and to recruit myself and a few other of my colleagues and, you know, make sure that he was bringing women and minorities into the legislature. And so I'm, I'm very grateful for his leadership. But in 2016, when I first decided to run, I, I approached the assembly and I was just getting ready. You know, I, I had worked, volunteered every campaign since I had moved here to Nevada. And I figured I would, you know, be working and volunteering on a few more campaigns before I ran. But when I approached the assembly leadership about running and preparing to run, they they thought I was ready in 2016. And so I jumped at the opportunity when it presented itself. I actually had a very, very, I would say long year of campaigning because I did have a primary in 2016. So I started, it was an open seat. It was currently held by a Republican who decided not to run. So it was an open seat. So there was me and another Democrat who ran for the office. Uh, so I went out there and started door knocking in February of 2016. And Assemblywoman Danielle Monroe Moreno was so gracious enough to come out and help me knock many doors in my district. So I'm very grateful to her for that. And then I, I went straight from my primary into a very contentious, you know, general election. My district has a very, very small voter registration advantage. So every every election is, is difficult. And I, you know, we have to make sure we're out there doing the work to get elected, which I enjoy. Um, I enjoy, you know, door knocking and I enjoy talking to my constituents. But November 2016 came and I was really excited when those numbers came in and I won with 6%. It was actually a little over 6% of the vote. And it was awesome to come into it was awesome to come into the assembly having a female majority assembly but we did not at that time have a female majority it wasn't until 2018 that we actually had a female majority legislature we made up the majority of both chambers and that was i would say very very impactful right i'm grateful that the only legislature i've ever known is one where you know 
women do have a seat at the table, right? But I hear stories from the women who've served before us. Assemblywoman Maggie Carlton is terming out this year. She's been at the Nevada State Legislature for 24 years. And some of the stories that she shared with us, right? She's a big mentor of mine. That was that when she first ran, you know, uh, they would forget to tell the women in the building that there was meetings happening and they would have to go and find where the meeting was happening and come in the side door to let themselves in. And they had to make sure they had a seat at the table. And now we have, you know, women in leadership, we have a majority female federal delegation. We have a majority women on the Supreme Court here in Nevada. And we have a female majority in the state legislature. So I'm very proud of our state for that. That is, it's an amazing story and example, I think, to the 49 other states uh, of what can happen uh, when you make sure that your body, your elected representatives represent, look like the rest of your community. You've used your seat, as we talked about, to address environmental issues, economic issues, housing issues. You've also been a passionate uh, advocate uh, for sensible gun regulation. Can you talk a little bit about your work in that area, where it comes from, and how it's going there? Yes. Great question, Ryan. And that's actually one of the issues I think that's just very near and dear to my heart. And I've always been an advocate for uh, gun violence pre prevention. When I ran in 2016, question one was on the ballot, which was closing the background checks loophole. And I made sure I went door to door and was not just educating people on who I was in my campaign, but also on this very important question that was on the ballot, right? It's an issue that's important to me. But in October 2017, I was with my uh, friends and my husband at the Route 91 Music Festival. <laughs> I don't think, I think no matter how far you get away from that, it's still a very, um, I would say, um, emotional story to tell, right? Because it just, it impacted not just us who were there, but so many in our community. But we were there the day that the gunman opened fire and killed 58 people and wounded nearly 500 others who were visiting our state for what was supposed to be an exciting, fun and memorable, you know, experience for many. And we ended up surviving the largest mass shooting in modern day history. But after that, I actually, I went silent on the issue just because I was, it was too soon. I didn't want to talk about it. The only people who actually knew I had attended and were there and was part of that day was the other speaker of the assembly, my parents, my siblings, obviously my husband, because he was there with me. And then our then um, assembly caucus executive director. And I asked them not to share the experience or that, that I was there with anyone because I just wasn't ready to share my story. But it wasn't until Parkland and happened in 2018. And I saw how those students like had to live through something that was just so difficult for me to like even speak about. Right. And I was like, and I was, a, I was an adult, I was in a unique position to do something about it. And here were these students in school still learning, still growing. And now they were faced with the same traumatizing experience. And I saw how they actually they came out, they formed March for Our Lives and decided to do something about it. And that's when I just, I said, okay, like enough, like I have to get out in front of this because I, I am, I'm, I'm in a unique position to actually do something about this being a, set, a state legislator. And so the, when we got into our next legislative session and it was, this is so sad to say, but it was over 300 days before we could actually do something in our state because we are only a biannual legislature. 
And so when we uh, went into session, the first bill we passed was we closed that um, background checks loophole and we passed Senate Bill 140, uh, 143 for background checks. And then that year I passed Assembly Bill 291, which was the most comprehensive piece of gun violence prevention legislation in Nevada state history. We banned bump stocks that year. We implemented extreme risk protection orders. We reduced the blood alcohol content that you could have in your system while in possession of a firearm. We implemented child safe storage laws. And then in 2020, I sponsored Assembly Bill 286, which banned ghost guns in our state, right? Which is a huge problem in our country. We've heard, you know, we've heard it talked about at the federal level, but no matter what happens, we need to make sure that we are also passing these, you know, laws at the state level. Unfortunately, you know, it's it's being held up in court right now, but I mean, our fight isn't over. This is probably going to be the biggest fight of my career going up against the NRA and the gun lobby, right? Because they're scary and they come out in large numbers and they intimidate you. But you know what? I think the work that we have to do is more important. Wow. First of all, like, thank you for stepping up and engaging and, you know, with your head and your heart on something that, uh, as you said, was so unbelievably tragic. Do you have other legislation that you're looking at in trying to address this issue? It feels like nothing is going to get done at the federal level. So we're left at, to, to try to figure this out at the state and local level. Yeah, which is why it was so important to me, you know, to make sure that we were passing our own bump stock ban here in Nevada as well, because you're right, you know, they, we had banned bump stocks at the federal level. But again, with you know, there's so much uncertainty sometimes at the federal level, we have to wait for things to get done. And we never know what's going to be repealed at the federal level. I wanted to make sure that we had protections here in Nevada for our constituents so that no one ever has to experience what we went through again here in our state. And yes, there's more that we're looking at. You know, there's tons we have to do around, you know, dealer licensing. Um, I've been exploring, you know, liability insurance for people who, who have firearms. You know, I, I just read this stat that, you know, firearms are actually killing more people than cars now in our, you know, in our, our country. So definitely working with our key stakeholders to see what we could address this next legislative session. This isn't something, you know, we can do alone. I rely heavily on our partner organizations like Every Town, Brady United, the Gifford Center, and our local states as well. And, you know, Moms Demand Action and March for Our Lives. And we do this all together. Yeah, it's it's going to take a, a coalition to, to continue to move these legislation forward and survive the court challenges, as, as you mentioned. I want to wrap this up on a on a fun note, which is we've been asking folks uh, on the podcast if I have sort of 24 hours to spend in your community, what do you recommend? And I mean, you get hundreds of millions of people <laughs> that come to your community uh, sometimes for 24 hours, sometimes longer. But is there something that you would recommend about Las Vegas that that maybe folks wouldn't wouldn't know about or, or think about, but that maybe give you a good feel for your community? Absolutely. And I'm so sad that I'm limited to 24 hours because there's so much to do in our beautiful state. But since I am from Southern Nevada, I'm going to focus on Southern Nevada. But the very first thing I would do is I am a huge lover of our outdoors and Nevada has so much of it to offer. I would encourage people to visit our state to wake up in the morning before it gets to 100 plus degree weather and head to beautiful Red Rock Canyon. It is one of my 
favorite places to go for hiking. There's plenty of areas to um, not just to hike, but to see petroglyphs. And sometimes you get to see the bighorn sheep. And there is some hikes that are in shaded areas and provide waterfalls. It's just one of my favorite places in our entire state. I used to go sometimes twice a, a day to go get in a hike in because I loved Red Rock so much. So I encourage everyone to go there. And once you're done with your hike and you worked up an appetite, I would encourage you to visit my beautiful district, Assembly District 41, and swing by one of my favorite restaurants here, which is Slater's 5050. They're known for their 50% um, bacon and 50% beef burgers. So perfect. Um, Yes, I think after a long hike, you've earned it, but they are delicious and in Assembly District 41. And then obviously, I would never let you come visit Southern Nevada without visiting our beautiful, you know, Las Vegas Strip. But before you get there, I would start in downtown. I would start in downtown Las Vegas and go visit Fremont Street Experience. I've done the zip lining there. I would encourage you to do the zip lining there. <laughs> Right. We have downtown also offers the Smith Center where you can catch a show and maybe before the show have dinner at the Golden Steer, which is an old, iconic Las Vegas restaurant. And really for your nightcap to end your day, there's no, th no place better than the Las Vegas Strip. And, you know, one of my favorite places to go just aesthetically, it's beautiful is the Chandelier Bar inside the Cosmopolitan. I love it. You're definitely raising the bar on the competition for our other New Deal leaders. Difficult for them for them to compete with that, but that was that's an amazing itinerary for just 24 hours. I love it. I'm gonna I'm gonna take you up on your recommendations for sure very soon. I want to thank you for your service. Thank you for fighting for your community on everything from fighting against gun violence to climate adaptation and beyond. As we said, Nevada has become a good role model, essentially, for other states because your demographics do reflect either where the country is or where it's going. And so things that, that can happen in Nevada can be replicated across all the states. And it's your good work that's, that's making that happen. Thank you, Ryan. And I appreciate the opportunity to share a little bit about me and my state on here with you. Well, I hope to see you at the next New Deal event. In the meantime, enjoy those those hikes and those 50-50 burgers. Thank you. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.